turn with me this morning, if you would, then, over back into Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. We started this fifth chapter, and as I mentioned last week, whenever we're uh, studying the scriptures, to always keep in mind that uh, uh, these are letters that are written to people, and uh, they weren't broken up into chapters and verses. That's not how they were originally written. But that was added in later in the translation so it would make it easier for us to find the passages and to memorize the passages and things such as that. But whenever these things were written, these were, this was a long letter that was written to the Galatian churches. And so whenever we come to the scriptures and we look at these things, we need to keep in mind, number one, that this was written in a context to a particular group of people and that... Uh, it's addressing a certain issue, but the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for all of us, not just the people that it was intended intended to, you know. Uh, but it's profitable for all of us uh, that the uh, uh, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped uh, for the work of the ministry, and then for also those who are not in the work of the ministry, as far as the preaching of the word that we might uh, be thoroughly equipped in the doctrine of Christ to be able to share that with uh, other people. So the Word of God, even though these were letters written, the Bible says that they were given by inspiration of God. It means that God inspired or God breathed out these words or spoke these words to these men to write down. So it's not just you hear the common argument by people today, especially among atheists and agnostics, so say, you know, you can't trust that because it's just a, a book that's written by men. Well, men pinned it down, but the words didn't come from men. The words came from God. And so uh, we uh, trust that all Scripture is given by inspiration so we can look at all of the Word of God. So when we come to this particular letter, as we've seen, Paul is dealing with an issue among the Galatian churches. He had been through there before and had preached, and... Uh, the gospel that he preached, as we found out in chapter 1, was a gospel that he didn't receive from man, but was taught it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12. So that was something that was given to him as the apostle. He was given the doctrine of Christ. Christ spent time with Paul, taught Paul all of his doctrine, and sent Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. All the other apostles that we read about in the gospels, uh, and before, you know, Christ's crucifixion and right after in Acts, we see that all those apostles were the apostles to the, uh, to the uh, Jews, where Paul was chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, not that all of them was exclusively, that was the only ones they could preach to, because we know Peter went and preached to Gentiles, and we know Paul also went and preached to Jews. So, we, they went back and forth, but primarily that was the, the case, is, they, is that Paul was the preacher to the Gentiles. And what had happened is that in the Galatian churches, and there was more than one church in the area of Galatia, so this letter was passed around to other churches besides just one church. But these churches, there had been men, Pharisees, that had professed faith in Jesus Christ and who had been... Um, worshiping among the Christians that had 
gone down from Jerusalem into these Gentile churches after Paul had gone through and preached the gospel and that gospel had been received from those people. And they had come behind Paul and said, you know, yeah, we agree with Paul that, that salvation is by Jesus Christ and everything, but you still have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved and to stay saved. And so whenever that began to, to start taking foothold within these churches, Paul has now written this letter to address this situation because that is not the gospel. The gospel that Christ had given him was a gospel that is a gospel of salvation by the work of Christ alone. That justification uh, is not uh, by the works of the law, but by the uh, work of Christ Jesus on being our, o o uh, our obedience in his life and being uh, our uh, death. He, was, uh, he took our death for us uh, because of our sins. He paid for our sins uh, in his death. And so Paul here has written to them that anybody that preaches another gospel, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, uh, which is not another gospel, but there be some that trouble you, and that's speaking of those Judaizers that had come down that was saying that you still need to continue to keep the law of Moses to be saved or for righteousness. He says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So any kind of preaching that, that is opposite of what Paul had preached to them about righteousness by Christ alone, uh, by, uh, by his work alone, is a perversion and is not the gospel of Christ. He says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you see here, Paul started this letter off really strong, saying that this, this supposed quote-unquote gospel that these men are coming down and preaching to you is not the gospel. This is a perversion of the gospel. It never was intended uh, to be the gospel. The keeping of the law was never intended for righteousness. And, of course, he, then he goes in to give an account about him going to Jerusalem, him and Barnabas going to Jerusalem to uh, uh, talk with the other apostles and consult with them about this matter, these men coming out of Jerusalem and uh, bewitching, uh, corrupting these Galatian churches. And we find that in Acts chapter 15. So we spent some time in Acts chapter 15, but if you'll turn back with me there, keep your fingers in Galatians 5. We are going to get there in a minute, but... In Acts chapter 15, we see that account that Paul uh, alluded to where they went and spoke to that. Look at verse 1. It said, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Ye cannot be saved. So what Christ did is not enough. You have to do something else to be saved. Okay, that's the perversion that they were, that Paul was talking about. Any gospel that preaches a condition that you must keep for salvation is a perversion of the gospel. It's not the gospel. And Paul said that anybody that preaches that gospel, let them be accursed. 
He also said that anybody that preaches that gospel is not a servant of Christ, no matter how religious they look, no matter how much you know good that they try to do. That's not being a servant of Christ whenever you preach that Christ's work alone is not enough, that we have to do something that he is conditioned. I've done all that I can do, now you have to do something to get it. Okay. Verse 2, he says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. So see, this caused a stir. Whenever this, whenever these men came in and started doing this, it caused a tremendous stir. And there was heated disputation between Paul and Barnabas and these Judaizers who was coming in trying to push this false gospel. And so they went to uh, Jerusalem to discuss this. It says, verse 3, and, they, and being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect, okay, and if you remember, whenever we went through these verses, we, we, we shown where it said there were certain men. Okay? It was particular men that was, that was within, with among these, uh, believers in Jerusalem, there were certain men. Uh, and Galatians says the same thing. There were certain men who had come in and done these things. So we see that it's tying into these same men. But listen to what they said. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it wasn't just about circumcision. And I hear that argument a lot of times whenever you start talking about this stuff. They say, well, they're talking about circumcision, not the law. We're still to keep the law of Moses, but circumcision was the only thing that they were eradicating. No, here these men were preaching that you not only have to be circumcised as given to Abraham... But you also have to keep the law of Moses. That's what they were. That, that's what they were telling these people. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. When there had been much disputing, so see again, this caused an issue. And as I've mentioned before, whenever you preach these things about the law and not, and then the Christian not being under law, and that we are not, uh, we don't have the obligation of keeping these commands uh, anymore. And especially for righteousness, where there is no keeping of laws for righteousness, but whenever this is preached, it causes disputing uh, and, and, and dissension within people because it goes against our very nature. Our very nature in Adam uh, is that we can do and per perform a righteousness that we think God will accept. It's the age-old question, uh, you know, that you always see in like movies and cartoons and things like that. You know, does our good outweigh our bad? You might see a balance scale and here's all of our good deeds and they outweigh our bad deeds or something like that, you know. Or we've done more good deeds, you know, people show up at the pearly gates and Peter, St. Peter's there looking through and seeing how many good deeds you've done, how many de bad deeds. Okay, now you can go through, you know. That's not how we get to heaven. That's not how men are saved. Men are never saved by what they do, but what Christ has done. And so we see here that there it caused dispute. He said, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, 
and put no difference between us and them. So there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Okay? God used the Jews for a certain amount of time in his purpose, but the Gentile was always purposed to be part of the people that God would bring people out of in salvation, and, and that they would be uh, one people. He says, He put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Now, now, pay close attention to this. You know, this is not my words. This is God's words here. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So Peter here is saying that whenever you teach somebody that you have to keep the law of Moses uh, for salvation or for righteousness, is the same as putting a yoke upon their neck. And he even admits that nobody of that of that order of people, their their people at that time, uh, and none of their forefathers could ever have done could ever do it. Okay, he said, "Why should we put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they." So he's saying our salvation and their salvation is done the same way. Our salvation wasn't by keeping the law of Moses. Our salvation was in Christ. Their salvation is because of Christ. So then all the multitude kept silent and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, and pay close attention here, to take out of them a people for his name. Okay, so there was always an elect among the Gentiles that would be saved, just as as among the Jews there was an elect to be saved out of the uh, out of the Jews. The Bible says that there will be uh, the elect out of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. Okay, that will be represented among the elect of God. He says, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which are among the Gentiles, uh, among the Gentiles are turned to God. Now, so we see here that uh, uh, they're appealing to the fact that the prophecy in the Old Testament of David's tabernacle being rebuilt. Uh, I grew up believing and teaching and actually hearing this all my whole entire life that that meant that sometime in the future, in eschatology in the future, that there was going to be a tabernacle rebuilt and Christ was going to come and rule with an iron rod from that tabernacle uh, on uh, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Okay, But here, that prophecy of Joel, we are told by the New Testament light that has been given to us that that prophecy isn't talking about a future tabernacle that's actually going to be built. It's talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God Therefore, we are all, like, the Bible says that we're lively stones and we are built up as the tabernacle of God. Okay, so it, it's a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. 
Okay, look at verse 21. It says, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren sending greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And here it is, look in verse 24 with me. And pay close attention, because this, again, not my words, it's God's words. For as much as we have heard that certain which went, there that word certain is against, referring back to those men who said you had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved, and as we've seen in Galatians, just not to be saved, but to continue to be saved. He says, For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls. So the preaching of that kind of doctrine is a subverting of souls. Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, and here it is, to whom we gave no such command. See, the apostles who Christ had given the doctrine to, the Bible says that the apostles that, that in the church that was laid first, the apostles, right? They was the ones who Christ spent three years with, teaching them his doctrine, spending time with them to thoroughly furnish them with the doctrine of Christ and to prepare them as the foundational level of the church that whenever he died and was going to and resurrected and ascended back to heaven that their teaching would carry on exactly what he said and that 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 the church would be established on the doctrine of Christ and that that would be a perpetual thing we read in the great commission that we are to make disciples and we are to baptize those disciples but there's a third part of the great commission that most people they don't ever pay attention to this they only think that make that the commission is to make disciples. And then there are some that say make disciples and baptize them. But the third part of the commission is you make disciples, you baptize them, and then you teach them all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. So the reason that the Lord's church is here, the reason why we're gathered here today, is so that we might teach all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us. And so that's the doctrine of Christ. That's about his salvation. That's about him. That's about God. That's about everything. That's why we meet together as we we continue to purport the gospel of Jesus Christ. We continue to teach the doctrine. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. There isn't no truth outside of God's Word. God's Word is the truth. And it's only whenever the people of God are gathered together you hear this truth. Well, now I'm not saying that we don't have truth when we're in our houses, but what I'm saying is this is where we gather to preach and to purport, and that's who holds it. The Bible says that he will be with us. He promised his presence whenever we gather together. Did you know that? That whenever the people of God gather together, there is a promise of a presence of the Holy Spirit of God to be there with them in the midst of that. And so that's why it's important for us to, to see that. And here... The church, as it's gathered together to hear these things, they say, listen, we didn't teach anybody or command anybody. This is not the doctrine of Christ that was given to us that we are now telling everybody is what is to be believed. This is not it. We didn't tell them that they had to keep be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. And so, so we looked at that. Now back in Galatians, so we see that Paul goes through his account of that in chapter 2. 
And then at the end of chapter 2, in verse 17, he says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found ministers, is therefore Christ a minister? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, it's in verse uh, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus. See, it's by the faith of Christ that we're, that we're justified. What saves us? The work of Christ. Christ's obedience to God. His faithfulness. See, our faithfulness is, is imperfect all the time. Okay? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. There's it, That's not the intent of God. Not only is that the impossibility... See, that's speaking of of, uh, ability. There is no ability for anybody to be justified by the works of the law because the Bible says that the flesh profits nothing, that it cannot do anything good. And so because of that, we can never keep the law of God. You would have to keep the law 100% completely without fail from forever and ever. And the Bible says that, that this don't happen because it says, For all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. That if we say that we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar, right? And so, because all have sinned, then therefore, if any is to be saved or to have a righteousness, that righteousness has to come from somebody else, because we don't have a righteousness. We can't perform a righteousness. And so that's why Paul says here that no flesh will be justified by the faith. That's the gospel. The gospel is that there is no salvation in what we do. It's only salvation in what Christ does. And so in verse or verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Now, the reason for this summation of what we've come through up to this point is to see, because we're fixing to see some of the same verbiage Paul's about to use it again, here we are. You have not obeyed the truth. Some people will say, well, there you go. You know, what, what is it that we're to obey? Well, we're to obey the truth. The truth is, and we, if you remember whenever we spoke about this, we said to obey the truth or to obey the gospel or to walk in the spirit. These are all the same thing. It's talking about the same thing. It means to walk in trusting Christ alone for our salvation. That's what it means to obey the truth. To obey the truth doesn't mean to obey the law of Moses because we just seen that the law to keep the law of Moses to be saved or to stay saved was never the intent. That was never even anything that was commanded from the first church by the apostles to all those who scattered out and other churches began to form because of their testimony. Okay, That never was preached. So we know that it's not talking about the law of Moses here, that you obey the law of Moses. It's talking about obey the truth. The truth that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we are to obey. It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should obey or not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, did you receive the Spirit by keeping the law? No, you didn't. He said, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, 
Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So see, this is why I say this isn't just about how to get saved. It's also about your continuing in salvation. See, Paul here has said that there obviously is some talk among these Judaizers that have come down saying that you got to keep the law of Moses to get saved and you also got to continue in the law of Moses to stay saved because here he makes it about a continuing thing. Are you now made perfect by the flesh? By continuing to keep the law, is that making you perfect? And the answer is no. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? And then he goes on and says in verse 12, And the law is not of faith. So we just seen here that we are not justified by uh, by law. We are justified by the faith of Christ. And he asks in verse 12, or says in verse 12, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for, for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon all the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, again, <coughs> it's about faith. It's about trusting Christ and looking to Him and 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 looking for Him to be your salvation and not you continuing in these deeds. Now in verse in chapter four, we got to the place where Paul is saying that uh, the law was given for a specific purpose. What is the law given? Why did God give the law? Do we preach the law? Well, we preach the law, but we preach the law as we would say lawfully. What is the law intended for? We don't preach the law to tell people to go out and do this for righteousness or to stay right with God. We preach the law to show them their need for Christ. That's what the law was given. It says that it's a schoolmaster. Look at chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, is, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So see, we're in bondage to the law. We're in bondage to the law, and, and we're going to reify that here in a minute. It's bondage. The law is bondage. The, in Acts chapter 15, we've seen the law was a yoke. If you all remember, and for you young kids that might not know, a yoke is something that they put over an ox or a, or a mule or something like that whenever they're out tilling the ground. You know, that yoke is what goes around the neck, and they're pulling whatever, or if they're pulling a, a wagon or whatever, you know, something that has a load on there, that yoke is what they put over their necks so that they can drag that load. Okay? And so that's what they're equating this with. The law is like that. You're trying to make progress and, and walk, but here's this law that keeps dragging you back. It's kind of, is fighting against you. And that's what the law is. The law is constantly pointing its finger at you. The law never tells you that you're good. The law, all it does is condemn us. All it, it, It's there to point the fact that we inherently are evil. I know people like to say, you know, that you know, the, the, the inherently people are good. You know, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are all wicked and estranged from the womb. The Bible says that when God looked down uh, upon uh, men, that he saw that the intent of their heart was only evil continually. 
So even though we might be good as far as man's standard is concerned, whenever it's compared to God's holiness, we're evil. We're evil. And so he's saying that the law is there to point out the fact of sinner, 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 sinner. It's there to point out our sin, and therefore, as a schoolmaster, it drives us to Christ. It sends us to Christ. For those who have been given spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, it drives us to Christ. We look away from ourselves and say, there is no way that I can keep the law. There is no way that I can perform a righteousness that God will accept. The Bible even says so, that no one's going to be justified by the works of the law. So all my, uh, my all my effort to keep the law to be right before God's eyes is in vain because God's not going to accept that effort. Because the Bible says that it's not by works, but by grace that we're saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's never going to save anybody from works that they do on, uh, on their own, because that would be boasting in ourselves. And God is not going to share his glory with anybody. The Bible says he will not share his glory with anybody, and that he will glorify himself. The whole purpose of all things is to glorify Christ Jesus. And if there's anything that we do, if there is a salvation to be had, but we have to do it, who is the ultimate one to get the glory for that? The one who says, hey, I'm smart enough, I'm going to accept that. Or I've worked enough, I did enough good, I'm going to do enough good to get that. Okay? There will be boasting. But in the salvation of the Bible, there is no boasting that can be done. It's all taken out of our hands. It's all in Christ's hands. And so Paul says the law is given there to point us to Christ. And then whenever we are by the Spirit brought by faith to see that and to believe that, receive that for ourselves as our righteousness like Abraham did whenever he heard of that righteousness that was from Christ, he counted that. That's my righteousness. Not my trying to keep the law, but that's my righteousness. Whenever we come to that place, then we are no longer under that schoolmaster anymore. There's no need for that. Because we now have seen that we can't obtain a righteousness by the law. It's by grace. And it's by through Christ's work. And so we see in verse 9 it says, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So once again Paul is saying to go back to the law is to go back into bondage. He said, you observe days and months and times and years, and the Jews did that. They had all, and we talked about this when we were going through here, they had their feasts and their festivals, the tabernacles and all their kind of stuff that they were given to, to keep during that time. All those were pictures and shadows to point to Christ. And when Christ came, he fulfilled the substance of all of that. He fulfilled all the law, not only by keeping every law that God had given. He's the only one that's ever kept all those 700 and some laws. But he's keeping all those laws, but he is also the fulfillment of all those laws. All those laws was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Bible says that he is the end of the law for righteousness. Because he has filled the law, fulfilled the law. And so him being the fulfillment or the substance of that, there is no longer any need for the shadow, the, the type. Okay, The type or the shadow is just... 
uh, something that to point you to the real thing. But when the real thing comes, there's no need for uh, for uh, for the old. There's no need for the type. There's no need for the shadow anymore. That's why the Bible teaches that that we are no longer under law but under grace, because that was the whole purpose of the law was to point us to that salvation is going to come by grace and not by the works of the law. And so, whenever he teaches this and preaches this, as we found out, uh, it does, it causes division, it causes issues, right? Uh, there was disputation before they went to uh, the courtroom in, Je- in, in Jerusalem, right? When they got to Jerusalem and they done that, there was division, there was disputation. And here Paul says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Obviously there was disputation here because the people were being riled up because these guys are saying this, Paul was saying this. There's a disputation. He says, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, here it is, verse 21, Ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And so then he goes into the allegory that we spent a couple of weeks on. The allegory between... Uh, Hagar and Sarah. Hagar was the bondwoman uh, for Sarah, and uh, whenever God promised Abraham a child, Abraham took things into his own hands, and by his own hands tried to bring forth a child because him and Sarah was barren; they couldn't have children, and so they didn't trust God for the promise. They tried to make it themselves, and so what did they do? Abraham laid with his handmaiden, with Sarah's handmaiden, they had Ishmael. But Christ came and said, that's not the child of promise. Sarah is going to have a child by you. You and Sarah are going to have a child. That's the child of promise. And God opened up that womb that was barren and gave forth Isaac to them. And whenever Isaac was brought forth, there became a contention between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael didn't care for Isaac. And there became an issue. Hagar had uh, had uh, 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 bad feelings towards Sarah. And so, because of that, the Bible says that God said to cast out the bondwoman and her son because the promise is not by the, bond, by the bondwoman, it's by the son, uh, the son of promise by Isaac. And so the reason this allegory was given was to show forth there's two mountains, there's two people. There is the mountain of Sinai, there is the people of Ishmael. That's the work of our flesh, that's the work of our own hands, that's our own deeds, trying to perform something of our own, and God didn't accept it. He said, cast that out. But on the other hand, there is Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, which is above, the Bible says, another name for it, and that we are the children of the free woman, that we are not a husband to the law anymore, we're a husband to Christ. And so that we are like Ishmael, we are children of the promise. If we are the children of God, we are the children of promise, not the children like Ishmael who has been cast out. So we see that there is a 
uh, uh, a duality or, or in us, we have the nature of Adam who wants to keep these laws for self-righteousness. We think that we can perform these things. And God is saying we have to cast that out because no way... Matter of fact, what does it say there? It says... uh, It was back, I'm sure it was back when we read back in Genesis. It's not in, in uh, Galatians, but back in Genesis. He said that, that Ishmael will not be part of the inheritance. He will not be part of the promise. And so our flesh is not going to get anything in the promise or in the inheritance. What does that mean? That means any effort that we do in the flesh to try to make a righteousness before God or to please God is not going to be accepted just like Ishmael. It's gonna, there's a purpose for it, and there's a reason for the flesh, okay? There's a reason why God has left us this way. It's to keep us in remembrance of our need for Christ. Every time I sin, what am I reminded? I failed. I need Christ. Every time that I can't keep the law, what do I do? I need Christ. It keeps me pointing towards Christ. I learn from my downfalls. I learn from my sin. I learn from my pain and agony. And I, the, whenever God puts upon us uh, uh, hardships and things like that, what does it do? It teaches us about how frail we are, how sinful we are, how unworthy we are. And it shows us that we are not righteous or not holy. And it points us to Christ so that we would look to Christ for our salvation. And so, that's why we have the flesh still here. And just like in the story of Ishmael, God sent Ishmael, he had to be cast out, but yet God still said, you know, he blessed Ishmael and that family in a natural way, just like now. Even though what's inside of us, the Spirit of God that is born from above, if we are God's people, we have the Spirit of God in us, And that's from heaven, and that's blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, as Ephesians says. That we have now all the inheritance that has been given to Christ Jesus, we have that in heavenly places. But yet our flesh, we're still in this flesh, and until we die and put off this flesh, and then whenever Christ comes and we receive that new body, you know, we're not going to experience everything that is in that, okay? And so now, with this flesh here, God has adopted us in this flesh, just like with Ishmael. Okay, there was a blessing that was given to them in our flesh. God's not going to God's not going to look to anything in our flesh that we do for righteousness or acceptance or anything like that. But He doesn't destroy that flesh. He doesn't kill us. He has every right just to snuff us all out because of our sin, but He doesn't. Because of his grace and the promise given to who we are in Christ Jesus, he is long-suffering towards us in this flesh. Okay? And so, that's why we will receive a new body. And that brings us to chapter 5. And I just want to bring out a, a few things in this cha- or in these two verses that we're going to look at this morning. And we'll be done here in just a little bit. It says, verse 2. We looked at verse 1 last week. Where Paul says, in light of all that, so everything we just surmised, in light of all that, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty 
wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So again, we are pointed back to Acts 15.10 and Galatians chapter 4 verse 9. Okay? It's called bondage. Don't be entangled again with the, with the law because it's a bondage. It, it, will, uh, it will kill your liberty in Christ. It will cause you to, to not be focused upon the liberty that we have in Christ. Verse 2, though, it says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. What's Paul mean by that? Well, he's appealing again to what these Judaizers are telling them. You have to be circumcised. And he's taking circumcision. He, again, we're not just dealing with the act of circumcision. Whenever he says, you who be circumcised, he's meaning the doctrine of these Judaizers, which is, yeah, keep the law for salvation or to stay right with God. Okay? But just particularly this circumcision, we can, we can actually say because God groups the law all together as one, not individuals, but as one, that if you keep one, or if you break one, you've broken them all, right? Okay? So, the transgression of the law rises and falls on whichever law it is that you break. If you break one, you've broken every law. So, it rises and falls as one law that you keep, and you have to keep it all perfectly. So, Paul here is saying that, you know, if you be circumcised, or whatever you want to say, if you want to do this or do it, just name one of the laws and put it in there. If you look to that for your salvation, then Christ is not going to profit you anything. If salvation comes by you doing that, then there was absolutely positively no reason for Christ to have ever done and came and do what he did. If you can attain, obtain salvation that way or righteousness that way, or a good standing before God that way, then there's no reason for Christ to have come because the reason he came is to be your substitute because you can't. That's why he came. That's why God is saying it doesn't profit you. And there will be some say, well, yeah, it does profit me because I continue to do those things to be right before God, but I had to have a, someone die for me. No, no, no. Christ came to live for you and to die for you. I mean, Dave was talking about this last night. <clears throat> Christ came and he lived a perfect obedience for us and that obedience of all those laws is laid to our account. It's not imparted inside of us to make us be able to live all those commands. It's laid to our account. All of us have, well, we used to have checkbooks. None of us hardly write, have checkbooks anymore. Y'all know what a checkbook is? <laughs> all right. I have one. <coughs> well, don't use it. Don't use it very often. Yeah, same with me. Anyway, at the back of those checkbooks, there's a ledger there, right? And that ledger is a keeping track of all the things that you've bought, your minuses, mostly, right? If it's like mine, it's mostly minuses, not very many pluses. But there's a lot of minuses there, okay? And my account says this is how much is in my account. Well, when it comes to righteousness, in our checkbook, every one of us in here, our checkbook says zero, no righteousness, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. That all of our righteousnesses, he didn't say all of our unrighteousnesses. He said all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our account is zero. But whenever Christ died for his people, 
The Bible says that he justified them. That means that that righteousness that he did and all that obedience that he did in those three years that he was here, or not I, his whole life, but 33 years, I guess I should say, that he was here, that all that obedience is now laid to my account. So whenever my ledger's opened up, Mike didn't do any righteousness, but my ledger says holy, righteous, because somebody else did that in my place. That's how Christ profits us. But the Bible says that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. Grace is something that's given to us free. Grace is something that's given to us without merit. Okay, we didn't we didn't deserve that. We didn't do anything to uh, to to purchase that or to do. It's just freely given to us. It's it's free. And so whenever I open up that ledger, ledger before God and God looks at that and He sees holy, it's not because Mike was given something to make him holy and he continued in that holiness. It was because somebody else who was holy took my place and God accounted that for mine. Okay? And the same thing on the other side with death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And every one of us has sinned. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God, right? So the wage for sin is death. So Christ had to come and also sacrifice. So his life was important because it was the obedience that was required of us before God. And he lived it. The death was the we actually have sinned. Even though our account says holy because of Christ, we've actually sinned. So we had to pay the price for that sin. So Jesus, as our substitute, our representative, our surety is the word that the Bible uses, he paid that price for us by dying for us. He took on the full wrath of God on our behalf, and that is also put in our ledger. The ledger of every wage that we owed is there. Every sin that we have ever committed, that we are committing, and that we ever will commit, if we are Christ's children, Christ died for those, His blood was shed for those, they are forgiven, they are forgotten, they are never going to be brought up again at a judgment later on in life, they are gone. Our account says fully paid, paid in full, every wage. Even though we sin, our wage has already been paid in full. Even though we sin, our ledger says holy, righteous, perfect, obedient, just, even though we're not. See, that's why great or that's why salvation has to be looked on on keeping looking at Christ, because as soon as we turn away from looking at Christ and think we can do it for ourselves, boom, Christ profits us nothing. Everything that Christ did for us, the substitution of obedience, the substitution of death, if, if we're going to try to go this way, then God's not going to lay this account to us. Now, if you're his elect, if you're his people, that's laid to your account no matter what, and he will bring you into the truth of that, and give you faith to believe that. What I'm saying is, is those who want to continue to believe that this is what's going to help you, Christ profits you nothing. 
there's, you might as well just quit even saying I believe in Christ because you really don't. If you believe that law keeping is what is going to save you and keep you right before God, then just quit saying anything about Christ because Christ's salvation has nothing to do with your law keeping. Salvation has nothing to do with works. It has everything to do with Christ. And so Paul is saying, it's not going to profit you anything. Look at verse 3. He says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. Now, so again, he's saying, So any man that believes that the law is what's going to do this. He says that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So let's just say it was. Just say the Judaizers was coming in and just saying circumcision and not the whole law of Moses. Just circumcision. He's saying that we're still a debtor to keep the whole law. Because he says you can't pick and choose which laws you want to keep and which laws you don't want to keep because they're all one law. You can't pick. If you are going to go the way of the law, the law says do this or die. That's what the law says. If you break one... You've transgressed every law. And you're guilty and you must die. That's what this is. Verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. So if your thought about justification before God is by coming by the law, by law keeping, good works, then Christ is of no effect for you. What Christ did for you on the cross is for nothing. If you think this. Because what Christ did on the cross is to secure for you a salvation in which he gives you faith to believe upon him. But you're not believing upon him. You're believing in yourself. You're believing in yourself. A good example of this is back in the Garden of Eden. Whenever Adam transgressed the law of God, what was the first thing that they did whenever God called for Adam? Well, they ran and they hid because they was naked. And what did they try to do? They made their own clothes out of some fig leaves, right? And they tried to clothe themselves. Did God accept that? It covered their nakedness. Why, why didn't God accept that? Because that wasn't God's way of covering. That wasn't God's way of covering their sin. Their sinfulness, they covered themselves. And God said, that ain't how it is. And so what did he do? As the proto-evangel or as the uh, foreshadowing of Christ's atonement for us, what did God do? He killed an animal, skinned them, and, and the Bible says, and he clothed them. He didn't say he gave it to them for them to clothe themselves. He didn't give it for them to do anything. The Bible says that God made the sacrifice and then God also clothed them. God put it on them. See, that's how it is if we look at that in the spiritual aspect of this. God is the one who is the sacrifice in Christ Jesus. He did the dying, but he also is the one who gives us the righteousness. He's the one who clothes us. We don't do anything to get the clothes. We don't, he doesn't give us something that we have to do so that it will get on us. You know, We don't pick it up, put it on ourselves. He clothes, up, clothes us. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. Christ is everything. It's all about Him. And man is not going to share in that glory. He's not going to have a part of it. And so, 
He's saying, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Does that mean they lost their salvation? Is that what that means? No, it's not what that means. He's not talking about that. Anybody who has been saved by Christ Jesus cannot lose their salvation. <clears throat> Nobody can lose their salvation. <clears throat> we can have doubts, yes. We can kind of move into some error like these Galatians did. Yes, the Holy Spirit's going to correct us. The Holy Spirit's been given to us to lead us into all truth, right? He's going to correct us. He's going to reprove us of sin. He's going to teach us. But what does this mean, that you have fallen from grace? That means, remember, back whenever this whole first started, remember Paul said, you know, remember, hey, I came and preached to you this gospel that wasn't from men, it was from God himself, and you received it gladly, and you were happy about it, and you believed it, that it was by Christ alone. Now all of a sudden you're looking over here to works for your salvation and everything. You have fallen away from the doctrine of grace, to the doctrine of works. You've fallen from grace back to works. You've fallen from, from Christ alone to self-righteousness. That's what it means that you have fallen from grace. Now, can this mean that some people uh, are not truly saved? Absolutely it is. Just in every church, no matter where it's at, you know, you never know who's in there. The Bible teaches us that the wheat grow up among the tares. Or the tares grow up among the wheat. Okay? There's the wheat and the tares that there are people that look like Christians, act like Christians, maybe talk like Christians and everywhere, but they might not truly be Christians. And so, yeah, there are some that may not believe this and they go back into a self-righteous system because they truly aren't saved by God. But even the elect at some point can be deceived a little bit, but thank God we have the Holy Spirit that brings us out of that deception. Okay? Now look at verse 5. It says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The Bible says hope that is seen is not hope. Look with me real quickly. This is the last verse, by the way. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So Paul is reiterating that same sentiment here in Galatians chapter 5 when he says that we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness. Now he's not saying that we're having to wait for that righteousness to be given to us because we already have it. We've already been imputed the righteousness of God. It's not talking about the death of Christ. The death of Christ has already happened. So righteousness has already been fulfilled in what Christ has done. The imputing of that or the laying that to our account has already taken place. So it's not talking about either one of those. So what are we what are we waiting for? What is what is the hope that we've been given waiting for? Well, the Bible teaches us that that hope that we've been given is the hope that at the end that this this tent, this body of flesh will be that's full of sin will be taken away and that we will be made into the image of Christ Jesus in that new body, right? 
the hope that we are looking for, or the righteousness that we are looking for, is a righteousness where <clears throat> the Bible says that that in heaven we go when we go to heaven and we indwell that new tabernacle as we are all brought together in our new bodies and we make up that new Jerusalem that in it the Bible says dwelleth wherein dwelleth righteousness. See, our bodies are full of sin. But the Bible says that when we die and at the resurrection, when Christ comes again, it says that the corruption will put on incorrupted, incorruption. That which is corrupted will put on incorruption. Our old bodies will die as corrupted bodies, but we will be raised as incorrupted bodies without sin. If we are without sin, that is righteous. That's the hope that we have. The hope that we have. Paul said it in Romans chapter 7. Look with me. While you're there at chapter 8, just look over just a couple of verses. <clears throat> he says in verse 11, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin. Working death in me by that which is good, or the law, that sin might, uh, sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So that's the purpose of the law is to make, to show us that sin is exceedingly sinful, that we are exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, there is no more, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh. And he makes that distinction because in him is also the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is perfect and holy and righteous and just and cannot sin. That's in him. But he's talking about in his flesh. I know that in me, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I then I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So even when we try to keep the law of God, evil is present with us all the time. Our sinfulness is always there in the flesh, and so it's not really good, it's evil in the sight of God. <clears throat> That's why he said all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So he's talking about the flesh. Who's going to deliver me from this? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the hope that we have, that one of these days that we're going to put down this body of death that continues to sin and sin and sin and sin and sin, and we will pick up that new body that does not sin, that is holy and incorruptible. And so he says, so then, with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, not in the keeping of the commandments. Walking in the flesh is trying to perform a righteousness of your own. That's what walking in the flesh means. But those who walk after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the law. So, Paul here in Galatians, back to our verse, in Galatians 5, he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen for grace, for we, through the Spirit, wait for hope of righteousness by faith. We're waiting, knowing this body is still going to continue to sin, but thank God there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus over that sin, because we have a substitute who has taken our sin and died for it, and given an obedience that God is pleased with, and put it to our account. And so we, by faith, wait for that hope. All right, we'll stop right there, and we'll continue uh, from verse 5, or verse 6, and go down as far as we can get next week. Anybody got any questions or comments? or Clarify anything? I have a verse of Scripture you want to read. All right. I want to remind everybody that we will not have any uh, we will not have any services on uh, March the twenty seventh. We are not going to have any services on March the twenty seventh. We're going to be gone that weekend, uh, and you guys are going to be gone the weekend before that, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. The twentieth. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but on the 27th, we won't be here, so uh, uh, we'll have we'll not have services here. So I won't be to pick you up on that day. All right. All right. All right. Any prayer request or anything? All right. Well, let's bow and we'll go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day that we have together. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Father, that uh, though we are sinners and deserving of death and hell, Father, we are grateful that we have been given eternal life, undeserving through the grace only of Christ Jesus. By his work alone are we accepted, and the beloved are we accepted before God. And Father, Lord, we just pray that as we ponder upon these things we read through the scriptures and see these things that our heart might rejoice in the grace that's been given to us that we might rejoice in the work of god lord we truly are thankful that salvation doesn't depend upon us because if it did we'd never be able to obtain that because of our flesh and so father we're grateful for what christ has done on our behalf as our substitute as our redeemer as our Savior. And Father, we just ask now that you just might continue to remind us of those things that we might find uh, joy and hope uh, in this gospel. Lord, I pray that as we minister this gospel to other people, that it too might uh, bring joy to their heart and that they might receive these things even as the Galatians at the beginning received these things and believed them and found joy in them, as did all the churches uh, and the people of God, and as you give them ears to hear and eyes to see, and as you 
turn their heart to believe the truth and giving them faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that uh, they might turn and believe your gospel. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, the way you take care of us on a daily basis, the way that you provide for us, and that you keep watch care over us, Lord. We are so grateful for all the blessings that you have given us, not only physically, but also spiritually, Lord. And so, again, we know that we are undeserving of these things. We are no different than anybody else. We are sinners and uh, deserving of, of all things that uh, your judgment would bring upon us. But, Father, we're grateful uh, and, and can only humbly say before you that we owe it all to Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it is him that we give praise to. It is him that we give honor to today. It is him that we are worshiping today. And we pray that that has been pleasing to you. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.